Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We're recording today's episode on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week, a one-point prelim, one-vote Brownlow and a double draw in the AFLW. So much to talk about. I'm Emma Race and I am thankfully joined by my football-loving Sanctum siblings. I'm going to let them introduce themselves in alphabetical order. Hang on, we'll go through the alphabet. I'm <laughs> Tess Armstrong. <laughs> Hello, I'm Lucy Race. I knew I'd get you with alphabetical order. You'd be like, uh, L-M-N-O-P-Q-R-S-T. You know go. what used to be the worst thing was in primary school because having the last name Armstrong, very helpful in terms of you're right up the top of the alphabetical chain. Tess, not so much. So, you know, it can work either way. But they would say things like, okay, we're going to leave the classroom in alphabetical order. And I was always so smug about it. And then every now and then you'd get someone trying to be creative and they'd say, we're going to do reverse alphabetical order. And I remember just being like, how dare you? Who do you think you are rolling in here with reverse alphabetical? There's some privilege with an triple A artvark where it walks a bit taller than everyone else. I just found it confusing because I didn't know if we were going first names or surnames. you got to clarify the terms of um, engagement. As you can tell, I'm very low on voice today, which is why I'm so very, very thankful you guys are here. <laughs> it's not because I was out partying. I did go to the prelim, the um, Cats Lions prelim. I arrived with a voice. I left with no voice, but it's actually illness. It's not due to um, not protocols, but it's it's illness. It's just not just not shouting at the TV. We've got a lot to get through. Massive highlights. The cats were emphatic. The pies tried to claw it back as they do. Are you guys happy with the teams that have made it through to the grand final, Tess? I am happy. Obviously, I live in a half cat, half cat's household, not the mascot. He's not in the house. As far as I know, he may or may not be. It's hard to tell sometimes, but I do love Geelong. I grew up as a Geelong person, as many of our listeners will know, and in and out of uh, Cadinia Park. And I have a lot of affection for that club and the town. And it's so special and hard to explain to people who didn't grow up in Geelong just how special it is for the town when the team make it. So I'm totally stoked for them. It'll be great to be in Victoria so all the Cats people can get along. It's fantastic for my relationship with the Tigers and not involved in any capacity so I don't have to worry about it. And Sydney, of course, they're just wonderful, wonderful to watch. The Brownlow this week, you know, I love the Brownlow, we'll get to that, but took us back down memory lane. And I thought, See, same with Paddy. He loved the Swans. He's all about it. He's singing it up in the background. But I really forgot just how emphatic Sydney were at many times this year. I think a lot of the year they just were doing their thing and there were other there were other fish to fry. And so we were talking a lot about Melbourne and about Brisbane and Frio's fairy tale. But really Sydney were exceptional all year. So I'm kind of excited. I can't tell what's going to happen. Yeah, you're right, Tess. So there's been a lot of talk about Geelong's 15-game winning streak. Their last loss was in May to St Kilda. But the Swans have been on a nine-game winning streak. So they, surprisingly, the last game they lost was to Essendon, but that was back in July. You know, when your team's not going well, this is an aside, which there'll be a few of them today, I imagine. But you know, when your team's not going that well and you take all the wins you can get, like if your team was bottom of the ladder, but you beat the Premiers, you're like, well, we won like St Kilda. You didn't have a lot. St Kilda M didn't have a lot going on this year, but they were the last team that beat Geelong. So take that. Oh, honestly, I I will be dining out on the fact that Hawthorne beat (laughs) Geelong. True. Basically, That's if huge. Geelong win, they should just send the Premiership Cup at to Bunjil Bagora because it <laughs> belongs to the Hawks. Oh, it should definitely go on Sam Mitchell's LinkedIn profile like as the number one talking point. I love the Swans. I love the Buddy story, the thousand goals. I loved, I mean, you're right, like Tess, Brownlow, it's so fun because you get that 
I mean, you could actually not watch footy all year and then just like sit down for those totally. 17 and a half hours and just watch the Brownlow and catch up on what happened. But to see Buddy being the superstar that he is at the SCG, kicking the thousandth goal, it's the, you know, getting towards the end of this contract that was so controversial to like, if you remember that when he first signed with Sydney and everyone thought he was going to GWS. And then, of course, they pulled off this massive coup to think that he's going to get to play on the MCG on grand final day and try and bring it home for the Swans. He's achieved so much there. It's really impossible to look away from that storyline. But, of course, there's storylines everywhere in the Geelong team as well. Let's get to the Brownlow last night. Gil was off the chain, absolutely off the chain, and he was as well at the um, prelim that I went to. I was in the room where it happens and he was doing a type <laughs> five and everyone was holding their breath. <laughs> and apparently he did it the week before, Dance with Delta. This time he was hustling. <laughs> Missy Higgins to do some um, a duet like a shallow with I thought he was with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Anyway, he's totally off the chain, and I liked that he was he was giving a few asides last night during the count, but he was giving too many. <laughs> Gaps. I mean, I reckon it added an extra hour, Lou. Oh, absolutely. And nothing says that you are not important quite like Gillan McLaughlin's fast reading. <laughs> he was just sending it, just throwing it away. Like people like, you got to vote, you got to vote, you got to vote, you got to P. Crips. No, no. <laughs> A. Brayshaw. Which one? A dinner break coming up soon. It was all he started as he meant to go on, which was very, very slowly. Uh, his opening monologue, I thought, holy dooly, we're going to back up here riding to Queen Elizabeth's funeral and it's going to be an all-nighter. So I was I, I was ready on the couch, to be honest, because I would have committed. Well, you know the AFL always wants to own the year, like they want to own all the space. I was like, oh, they're just going to start it from here and just go all the way through until the season comes back. I loved seeing Kylie Rogers and Laura Kane as the Tatslotto judges on the fold-out table last night up on the stage. It's the first time there's been two women up there. It does beg the question, what do they do? We have to get to the bottom of it. I'm pretty sure they're reading along, checking that the votes are correct. But does the CEO actually need to read the votes? It's been protocol. It's been what's been done. But is it really essential? I don't I don't know. that. The, do the votes get read at um, local footy clubs by the president by the CEO like it's like it's a pretty weird um I think it's a pretty weird thing that they do because often I'll MC an awards night and I'm the one that's reading the votes like it seems really strange that it's the CEO I, w- I wonder whether if we see a change in of the guard whether they maybe will mix that up a bit I guess you know I wonder if it depends on personality but I mean the Brownlow has a lot of traditions and it doesn't change things easily. But the last few years, we really have seen a lot of changes because there was two online Brownlows. And then this is the first time that it's been back in Melbourne, you know, with everybody in the room. And to change the day, I thought was pretty big too. I wouldn't have put it past the AFL to just go up against the Queen's funeral and force people to watch. It was indicative of the season as a whole, really. Like it dragged in parts, but it was a thriller and it kept me interested right until the end. It was close, anyone's to win, and we had the old Chekhov's appeal. I mean, a moment that was so massive in the season ends up being the moment that decides this very close Brownlow. And so really, I want to commend the writers of this season of the (laughs) AFL because really sometimes we've given them a bit of flack in the past, you know. Some of the finals have been a bit... You know, finales have been a bit of a dud, but this final really has kept me guessing. So look out for the grand final. Anything could happen. What do you think about that appeal now in retrospect? Because it has this massive impact now on people's careers and lives. I've got to be honest, I sat down at the table um, the other night. I was sitting with um, Brendan Gale and his wife and I had taken a friend of mine who's a Tiger supporter and all three of them, the first thing they said was, it was a goal. (laughs) They're still not over it. So I'm thinking that people who, you know, if you're an Angus Brayshaw fan or if you wanted someone else to win the Brownlow last night, people like a Lockie Neal fan, people will be talking about the appeal because, you know, Paddy Cripps brought it home with three votes in that game, pretty controversial. And, um, you know, I imagine talkback will be absolutely, you know, lit today. Well, I think it's just what makes this game go round, isn't it? That there's always something that we don't agree on. There's, it's such a subjective game, even in, you know, deliberate 
out of bounds. We've got so many rules that you just have to kind of get inside somebody's head and decide what they were thinking at that moment. And it's always going to be like this. But I can't believe that you haven't mentioned what I thought was my highlight last night, which was Took Miller's journal. And I think journaling has just been journaling for the win this season. The real surprise is that he learnt to journal from Travis Boak. It's like, okay, it's like a journaling club because I would get in on it. Like Matt Rowell, obviously the journaler of our times, working, I mean, there's two journalers at the Gold Coast Suns. I wonder if they have an award for it. I would love it if they got into scrapbooking next year. (laughs) We just saw some puffy paint and some glitter glitter pens. I'd love to know if the journal, because he said, you know, it's all about manifest. It was essentially a manifesting. This is the sort of player I want to be. Like does he cut himself out, Photoshop himself, holding up the cup? cut it out, put it in the journal, manifest it. I used to do that as a child. In fact, when I won the 70 metres at Proclamation Park in under sevens, um, 70 metres traditional Olympic um, <laughs> distance, um, I had manifested during the week and drawn a li- lot of photo uh, pictures of me beating Catherine Scott, who was my arch rival. Um, so it was either that or the Mr Clever socks that I wore that always <laughs> made me go faster. They were knee highs. Um, Lucy will attest to this, but manifesting has been a big part of my life. So, you know, I say go for it, Duke Miller, and get some Mr Clever socks. Now, I do have one mention. I actually thought the coverage last night was quite good. I know people will think it goes on, but I like the fact that it goes on. So that's a moot point for me. But it had a real emphasis on grassroots. There was a lot of interviews with people who've known these people for a really long time. I really felt like I got to know a lot of the players last night in a way that I hadn't at other times. But I still want to put my trash pants on for a second. Trash pants sounds awesome, by the way. I feel like that's a thing that they should sell at the shops. But I love a red carpet because I love dresses that I'm never going to wear because I never go anywhere and I have a toddler and I'm constantly covered in toast, pits of toast. And so, you know, I like to like live vicariously through other people. But why don't they get the red carpet coverage right any of the years. Like they pick five people and they show me their dresses over and over and that's fine, they're beautiful, good on you. I want to see every dress that comes in and every fun suit. So what I propose is that in these tough budget times, they've got a lot of people working on it, they've got a lot of interviews, they're paying a lot of people for, you know, an hour or a half an hour of content, set up a tripod, a home cam, you know, a camcorder, press record, and then just fast forward the vision and then play that back to me with a soundtrack. That's all I want to see is just people walking in. I don't need to hear from anyone. Just give me the dresses so that in the morning when I go on the internet and I'm like, I never saw that dress last night, I don't feel robbed of red carpet content. What do I you think, totally Candace? agree. I totally agree. Just line everybody up, get a like <laughs> a drone camera straight yes. down, go really quick. It would be like, you know, we've seen a lot of footage out of you know the queue in London, yes. I saw what those people were wearing, and there was way more people. <laughs> Red carpet of the queue was something that I didn't know I was looking for, but I don't know. I just think we do this every year. I don't understand how I still don't see any of the actual outfits no, that people I put agree. so much effort into. Um, a friend of mine made a dress for the Brownlow a couple of years ago, and she is a Melbourne designer, and it's such a big deal to get your dress onto the red carpet or to get your dress at any stage, you know, seen by the public. And so for them, like if you're a designer looking at home, waiting at home, you go, I've already seen this, where's mine? Well, it's, it's also weird that they had banned the question, who are you dressed by? Like who's the designer? Because they'd heard the feedback that some of the conversation and some of the questions asked to partners of players were a bit inane. I kind of thought it's missed the mark. Like it's not about like not asking where the dress is from or who designed the dress. It's actually asking all of the other questions around it. A way to get around that would be just not ask them any questions, just set the camcorder and let it be because I don't need to hear from anyone on the red carpet really, maybe just people saying who they think is going to win. I, I don't mind the dresses or the suits or whatever, but I just the count just needed to start. I just wanted the count to start. <laughs> I just want them to get through the count. And I actually had been lamenting because my husband wasn't here last night and he was away and I was texting him and I said what I had said to you guys, which is, you know how some meetings could just be emails. I'm like, some segments could have just been an Instagram post. And just as I'd said that, <laughs> five minutes with the front bar came on. <laughs> I thought, oh no, he's getting heckled in his own house. <laughs> Feedback. But um, yeah, which is a little embarrassing. I did think it was a funny segment, but I was like, oh, just give me the, the count. I just want the count. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make it better if it goes for longer at that point of the season. I think that that's where I'm getting to. 
We should also mention it was a great speech in the end by Patrick Cripps. I thought it showed a lot of him. That I, you know, I don't know much about Patrick Cripps. I don't often see him speak in depth like that. And the Brownlow speech is such a good way to get to know people, except Dusty, if you're listening. But you get to know the players really well. And he spoke so much about vulnerability and overcoming hurdles, and he was really beautiful. So I really loved getting to know him. And the other thing that I just desperately loved it. I was following it like it was a serial TV show that I had to f- find out the end to was was that Patrick Cripps's mum was the mystery of the night right if there's a mum next to a player and they look as invested as that lovely woman looked in Patrick Cripps I presumably that's his mother but actually in fact that was Harry Mackay's mother and as I said to you what an interesting way for Harry and Patrick Cripps to find out that they are brothers uh than to be um to be sprung on the television like that and also great mum energy there should be a mum on every table I think was another thing that you suggested because she was really invested and everyone else is a bit too cool for school Max Gorn way too cool for school Maxie just he's starting to cross over he didn't look happy he doesn't look like he's even happy to be there I I think a mum mum energy on every table is fantastic let's move on to talking about the AFLW because the precursor to the Brownlow way better than the red carpet was the D's Brisbane game which I'd been hanging for all weekend I couldn't quite believe how I mean the weather this weekend really played a massive part I would have loved to have seen that game played at Marvel with the roof closed I would have loved to see perfect conditions for them but Brisbane are unbelievable I think um Nick called it at the start of the year. She said Brisbane's the team to beat. I think that we've all kind of probably got to that point. But the Blues had it their second draw in two weeks, which has got to hurt. Like I don't actually know what do you take from that really tricky one. Tight one for the Bombers and the Tigers, which I thought was interesting because – you know, we're getting a real sense of what the Bombers are capable of, but the, this Tigers outfit looks so different. And when you match up the names of those in those two teams, I thought it was actually pretty complimentary. I thought there was a pretty it was pretty equal. But it's just those bigger bodies, couple of extra seasons into those Tigers bodies, I reckon have made the difference there. Thrilled for Port, not such a good day for Sydney, to be really honest. That was pretty hard. And um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Sydney and Hawthorne next week. I'm still enjoying this AFLW season so much. There's so much to enjoy in just, you know, green shoots, small moments for the, for the new teams, but a, th- a huge one for Aaron Phillips and Port Lucy. Yeah, my highlight was the Lions just finding a way in those really tough conditions. And the Ds had won their last five against the Lions. So the Lions, I think, will be wrapped to have come away with that win. It was really about the toe poke. Those first three goals were all from kind of soccer's Jesse Wardlaw had kicked two and then Zimmy Farquharson popped up and kicked another one. And we heard Stasevic at three-quarter time say on the coverage, basically, we back ourselves to, you know, push up, get the ball over the back and then we'll we'll get it. They really did execute that game plan superbly. They're really the team to beat. The thing that I think is really exciting that there was a lot of talk about what it would be like to have four new clubs and we're going to have lots of lopsided games and you know yes there are going to be some and we did have some but it's not always about the scoreline the Hawthorne Dogs game was super tight I only saw it to half time because then I had to travel home from my holiday sadly but that was a great contest and if you look at the ladder there are eight teams on two wins in so eight points and it's a fascinating season. It's been so much fun already. And I really, my highlight has to be Port. They were playing. I loved that. That home crowd. They were so invested. Loz now getting the win. Good for her. But also this lovely thing that I love about footy at all levels, which is the generational breadth of a team. So you've mm. got... Aaron Phillips and you got Hannah Ewings and they're both showing us what they've got and they're both playing together and, you know, they're both learning from each other and that's one of just the great things about footy clubs all over um, Australia is just this generational teaching that happens within the clubs and I just loved it and they were just amazing and and the Bombers, I've absolutely loved them this season, was happy to get the win, don't get me wrong, and I loved my Tigers, we're really up and about. I'm obsessed with Ali McKenzie in a way that I haven't felt about Richmond play for a long, long time. I just absolutely love watching her play footy and so it was so exciting. And Dreamtime in the AFLW, like, hello. Yeah, there was Welcome. some really beautiful ceremony over the weekend. Um, Mon Conti, by the way, just gets better and better and you could hang a whole team off her. Um, the Before the Hawthorne game, I know I'm completely biased, but I'm going to say it anyway. That was a beautiful smoking ceremony and a welcome to country. There was a call to country before that as well, which was just stunning. Auntie Joy Murphy's granddaughter, I think it is, she did the call to country 
at the launch of the AFLW season, which was stunning. And she did it again out at Box Hill City Oval. And there was a smoking ceremony. There was gifts handed over, but there was also a dance troupe with these little tiny girls. Oh, that was so sweet. It was just beautiful. And Auntie Joy's granddaughter sang the Hawthorne theme song in language and had spent the week learning it and working on it. There's a great video on the website. I just thought the depths of people finding new avenues to educate on that occasion, um, I thought it really came through in the AFLW because I feel like the lens of seeing Indigenous culture presented through women's eyes um, with the AFLW gives us something different to what it does in the men's game and it's because it's cultural and so I feel like I learnt more this week and last week through Women's Indigenous Round, Lou. Yeah, I'd echo that. I was really struck by how every time I hear a welcome to country or an acknowledgement of country, I learn something. I really noticed it this week because I'd been away on holiday. I was on Gubby Gubby country and it dawned on me that all of those welcome to countries have actually changed the way that I interact with with the country as I travel around it. I now think about whose land am I on and I think about the stories of that particular part of, of the country much more than I ever did. I think that's one of the values of, of welcome to countries for a white woman like me. I'm really grateful for it. So let's roll up our sleeves in Malay because the impacts over the week of the memorialising of the Queen of England, the former Queen of England, RIP, versus First Nations Respect conversation has actually, um, it's blossomed, it's grown, it's kind of taken on a life of its own over the last week. There's been some huge moments and while not all have been respectful, I don't think. And I'm looking at the NRL and we can talk about that if you want to, the way that players' voices have been clipped. I also think that it's pushed the conversation forward. I thought Daisy Pierce on SEN was just demonstrated some pretty extraordinary allyship. If you haven't heard it, here's a bit. I kind of think that this all comes down to which version of our nation's history you give voice to and bring to the fore. Because to me, Indigenous Round is a time not just for celebrating colourful jumpers, as, as awesome as they are, and not just for celebrating Indigenous players, but for educating ourselves and concerning ourselves with the facts in this country's history that aren't well told. And giving, I guess, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people a platform to tell their stories. To me, that's what Indigenous Round is about. I mean, the value of Daisy being in the conversation really does demonstrate how important it is to have a diversity of voices. Um, there's not that many First Nations people who have a microphone who are able to have that conversation. So it's great that Daisy could step in and do it, but it is shows the absolute lack of diversity when the conversation's being had. We need more people in the room who have a lived experience who um, are happy to talk about it even though I know that it's been so horrific and so troubling for so many First Nations people and I think that while it's been really challenging I do feel like it's pushed the conversation forward and I liked what Daisy said when she said I guess it's about what you want Australia to be and I think that that's been put on the agenda and for that I'm really grateful because I know which one I would be choosing. What I've really felt this week over the last what is it 10 days is a real disconnect about our national identity. There are a lot of other aspects to this conversation, but just thinking about that particular part of it, I'm really aware that we haven't done the work as a country. So we haven't done the work in terms of truth-telling. We haven't done the work in terms of treaty. And what that means is that when we come to, to moments like this where there is tension that it's really, really uncomfortable because mainstream media, um, the big institutions are all telling one side of a story and ignoring something that is so glaring to so many other people. We're always going to have tension until we actually work out who we are as a country. So what I'm hoping is that if we can do that work, we'll come to a place where all the strands of our history have a place to sit alongside each other and we won't have that discomfort every time we try to talk about it. It's amazing to think how quickly a National Day of Mourning can be rolled out for the Queen, but we've been, you know, as Belinda Duarte said, we've been waiting 80 years for one. I think obviously they've been waiting 180 years for one, but I think that needs to be put on the agenda. But I also am always overwhelmed by the grace of 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to want to have a conversation with us about it when they could really just get very angry and feel very sad. And the grace that that all of the acknowledgements and welcome to country in the AFLW in the last two rounds has really been about welcome and making people feel welcome and saying you have a place here, this is your history too. I just think that that is such, I mean, it's leading with compassion and with with a welcome, open heart. It's amazing. What we've come to realise as well about Australia and about our beloved country is just how difficult we find conversations that are even touching on our identity ever. Whenever a big news item comes up or it's Adam Goods or it's refugees or it's, and we think, oh, this is our national anthem, here's what it says and here's how we behave in reality. We find these that we find these conversations very difficult. A real emphasis on now's not the time to have this conversation or that conversation or whatever. But we are also a country that promotes the ability to have an opinion and to, and and free speech. And I wonder where the free speech people are, right? When people want to have an opinion about something that they don't like, they're kind of nowhere to be found. We lost an incredible Indigenous voice in Uncle Jack Charles who died last week right in the the middle of the 10 days of mourning of the Queen and I noticed that there were just so many incredible stories about Jack and how he'd personally helped people, went into prisons with Archie. They did so much work. A few hours of coverage of Uncle Jack's stories was so meaningful right in the middle of this 10 days of mourning where I know that people feel it really strongly but about someone who we hadn't met and we hadn't necessarily got those personal connections with. And I've noticed as well with the coverage of the Queen that it hasn't, what usually would be quite helpful is when when a thing happens and then we have a reflection on what it means for us. And I noticed that there were a lot of uh, news packages about other Commonwealth countries discussing whether or not they become a republic, and not about Australia having that conversation. And I thought, how odd that our coverage is reflecting how other Commonwealth countries might react to the news, but we're unable to have a conversation, a real talk conversation about what we think about it amongst ourselves. I wonder whether it's some arbitrary thing about not saying anything about it until after the funeral and 10 days is a really long time to not have those conversations. But we are saying something about it because we're talking about other, other countries people, yeah. becoming a republic. It doesn't it's, make sense. It's us. It doesn't make sense. No, and no it doesn't. And it's one of those things where we really should shy away from difficult conversations because everybody's going to think differently about the Republic and the monarchy and whatever. And there's a whole heap of angles to that, not least of which we haven't really had a proper conversation about our own history and what we want our future to look like. And that I think feels too big for people. So instead of being able to deal with it, they say, don't say anything at all. Don't tweet anything. Don't say anything because that would be too difficult to deal with. But death is difficult and change is difficult. And so we've kind of just got to get right in there and have those tricky conversations. I do think it's stunning and so incredible that football is part of this conversation. It's such a massive vehicle for this conversation. And I don't think I'm just seeing it through my own football loving eyes. It feels phenomenal to me that a sport can lead this conversation. And you know, when you look abroad and you see what's, you know, overnight, there was a minute silence at a Celtic game and they just clapped and cheered the whole way through it because they're protesting. They don't want to remember the Queen. They don't want to do a minute silence against sport. Is leading the public conversation on this, Lou? We should mention Caitlin Moran, who plays for the Newcastle Knights. She's a Gomeroy and Anawan woman. She played in the Indigenous All-Stars. She's represented Australia as a Jillaroo. And because of a comment that she put on her Instagram, she was banned for a game and has a suspended fine of 25% of her contract that's contingent on her not saying something again, but also going through an education and training program. And I feel incredibly uncomfortable about that. We cannot look at the comments that she's made without looking at it within the context of all of these things that we've been talking about and the impact of colonisation. And all I can think is that we give the full force of protection to the most powerful people and institutions and we don't ever afford that to people in minority groups or people without the power. And if you think about her role as just as an athlete, the minimum wage for somebody playing in the NRLW is eight and a half thousand dollars at the moment. I think it will go up next year. In 2022, there is five rounds of home and away football and finals. So it's hardly full time. So you've got somebody whose pay and conditions are probably at the lower end of any elite athlete, but the sanctions are higher than we see for people who've committed other crimes, crimes with 
actual victims. And I know that criticism is uncomfortable, but I think that we need to get to a point where we're not so fragile that we can't hear it. I would like to see this go to court. Like I think this could, should be completely overturned. I don't understand why she should face this kind of admonishment and punishment because there would be nothing written in the NRL's constitution about what you can and can't say about the Queen. It'll be about bringing the, bringing the game into disrepute, but I think that that's a very arguable case, right? I would have to hospital hand pass this to Kate Sear to find out, but I know that most organisations do have a social media policy <laughs> and it, that is quite broad, really, about what a organisation would find. And I think as well sometimes it comes down to exactly the same that they talked about last week on the podcast about the minute silence. They've really got to have a have a look at just what this might look like out in the wider community, which is very difficult to do if everybody in your group thinks exactly the same way you do, that no one's going to say, oh, I don't know about how this looks if you're all coming from exactly the same perspective. Totally. And I think um, I think that the tide's turning on that stuff. And I'm even going to take that one step forward further and say when institutions just do what they've always done, and I'm even looking at the royal family right now, if you think about what the, their, you know, the rules and the laws that they've made up and that, that they're, in, you know, insisting on going with, actually the court of public opinion is going to turn and like Harry and Megan are going to come out looking better than everyone else in that royal family and you know I'm really interested to know whether the NRL actually there was a few stages of warnings that she got before because you know if that was if she got the warning she got a second warning and she kept it up there then that's actually her forcing this issue and you know if that's what she wanted to do then that's that's for her to do and that's the choice well you said you mentioned they're the royal family and it's a very good example because during the week there was this moment where the public realized something that the royals clearly hadn't realized internally which was that they'd apparently asked, I don't, haven't been following it too closely, so this is very new idea headlines. However, they you know, said to Harry that you can't wear the military gear, you have to wear the suit because you chose to leave too bad, too sad. So he's wearing his suit and everybody else is wearing the military gear and really it was pointed out by journos outside where they said things like, oh, okay, one of these people has seen active service in Afghanistan and that was Harry. Now that was pointed out. Everybody clearly went, oh, yeah, that's made us look a bit bad. And then they've changed it for upcoming things so that he can wear the military gear. And I just thought you just need to ask someone who you know doesn't necessarily think the same way when you're going to make a really public statement like that just to make sure you are reading the room, uh, so to speak. And in this case, I'm not sure that the NRL are reading the room. They're reading a room but maybe not the room. Okay, let's move on. Um, we could talk about this forever. In fact, we probably will. This, there's been some criticism after the Cats Lions prelim. I don't actually know what happened at the um, Swans Pies game as well, but there was blaring music after each goal. And in fact, there was also fireworks. I don't know if you saw that on the coverage. People with auditory sensitivity issues were having real problems with it. Also, traditionalists of the game saying, you know, it's kind of messing with the sounds of the game. I have to say, I'm kind of there for it. I, no, I, like I'm there for the conversation because it really, it was very strange. It was a very um, baseball slash meets basketball. And all I could think was it was the gateway for kind of priming us for a nighttime grand final because fireworks after each goal seemed a little over the top. Teddy, what did you think? You're an audio professional. Also, when the when the goals were coming out of turn, like it wasn't a very exciting game anymore. Brisbane were out of it. They kicked a goal, and then there was this massive fireworks. And I thought, oh, that feels like a cruel um, a cruel twist. I hate it, and I, it'll come as no surprise to anyone. I hate it. I hate it for a lot of reasons. Part of it that I feel like too many people are just going, how can we spruce this up a bit? when the game is the entertainment and that is where all the focus needs to be. I don't need 30 seconds of Bruce Springsteen. Like I do in my life but not at the football. And it's also so loud. Firstly, it's so loud on the broadcast which does my head in because if you're producing a broadcast and you're not in control of all the sound, that's quite disconcerting. Secondly, I have to always say who was asking for this and who has really wanted this and if it's just something that's come up with once again inside a room and they're not necessarily reading the room that kind of makes me cross because I think you can't be so out of touch with the general population and the general footy watcher that you would think that this is something that they wanted and the idea that it's too quiet in the crowd or you need to force people to get up and dance and have fun I'm having a ball. I'm at the MCG watching the game that I've watched my entire life with people I love who all care about this thing that I care about. That is the most fun thing you could ever be doing. I don't need you to create this. 
Also, it really takes away the opportunity for creativity. For example, the Barmy Army. Why would they need to come up with their fun chants, their fun songs, if, if after every single over they were drowned out by Bruce Springsteen? They would never need to come up with it. So we'd never have get to see the creativity. And not that I'm saying that G-Lung, G-Lung is the most creative thing in the world, but I'd love to hear it. There's some tradition. So if you're going to fill the space for people, then they're not going to fill it for themselves and we're not going to be able to continue to just create the sound fabric of this game that we love so much. So stop filling my sound. Well, I think we saw I could hear the Sydney crowd chanting Sydney, which I thought was kind of interesting because they were taking the Collingwood Collingwood and flipping it back at them. So if you're drowning all of that out, you miss it all. But I feel like it's throwing some AFL X vibes. I feel like it's a bit of a, a, a leftover. And it reminds me of sticking lollies on your face to make people want to play with you. It's we just don't need to be enticed. And if we do, that is not what we need as the enticement. It also should come with a warning because there's people who really struggle with, you know, having over um, stimulation of with the noises and they can gear themselves up for the siren or for what might happen at certain times of the game. But to not expect that, it would have been pretty frightening. And the AFL has been really good at leading with those, you know, rooms that you can go to, to make sure that you feel comfortable during the game and and, and so I think, it, I think it locks a lot of people out of the game, which is really challenging. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Trent Cooper, and you're listening to my equal favorite podcast, The Outer Sanctum. During the week, Rana caught up with someone who's pretty special. Sonia Hood was appointed the president of the North Melbourne Football Club, made a cracking appointment of Alistair Clarkson as their head coach. She caught up with Rana Hussein. Uh, Here's that chat. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Sonia. It's such a thrill for me to be able to sit down and talk to you. I've watched you from afar for a long time. The last six months for you has been described as a baptism of fire by some. What have you learned since becoming the president of the North Melbourne Footy Club? Um, I think baptism of fire is a pretty fair. (laughs) Really, it's been like 10 years experience shoved into six short months, really. Um, What have I learned? I've learned there are lots of really good people around the footy industry. So in amongst all of the noise, there's a heck of a lot of support and help, which has been terrific. I've learned just how human the industry is. So maybe that's an extension of the same thing, but um, lots of conversations happen, which actually are about people and people's lives. And you've got to always bear that in mind, I think. Learn how much it means to people. Mm. I probably knew that. And I've probably learned that I'm more resilient than I thought I'd be. Yeah. I've heard, well, apparently Kate Roffey described the role as being the strangest thing you'll ever do. She rang me on the day that the, that it was announced and said exactly that. And she said, when you um, get to the point where no one else in your world understands what you're going through, give me a ring. And it's rung absolutely true. And Kate and Kylie have been absolutely fantastic, actually. So this is Kate Roffey from the, of the Melbourne Football Club president. Yeah. Kylie Watson-Wheeler. Uh, at the Western Bulldogs. And, of course, you also, up until recently, have had Peggy O'Neill. And Peggy's been amazing. I've known Peggy, um, I knew Peggy when I worked in football too, and so right from when she started at Richmond and we've had a connection. Back when she started at Richmond, we would go to events together where she and I were often the only women. There was a trip to Parliament House that we both still talk about where we got on the bus with two representatives from every club going to Parliament House in Canberra. And she and I got on the bus, we sat at the front and we turned around and we were the only women on the bus. Uh, and to be fair, there were a couple of other women coming from the AFL, but they weren't on the bus. Those women have been tremendous to me, and as have the other male presidents, I've got to say, but I don't feel the need to listen individually. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm dying to know what that little group is like. They took you out for lunch when you were first announced. Yeah, we went president. to dinner. It's nice. Yeah. What are the conversations like? Are you just are you talking about the job or are you sharing tips and tactics? What does it look like? It's more about less about the job, although we do talk a little bit of shop, I suppose, and more about the juggle of it. And I think mm. that the juggle's hard to describe to you in it. Firstly, it's a role you have in addition to your full-time job. So that's a start. It's a role that doesn't fit neatly. So I've had plenty of board roles and I've run plenty, you know, a couple of organisations. And, and so this is the same as that, I suppose, but it comes with a profile that, that is out of this world. And actually you're either completely invisible or completely visible. So it's one or the other. That surprises me. I've not experienced that before. So it's it's more that how do you how do you work the, the couple of things? And the other thing about the, the role of club president or club chairman, whatever you want to call it, is it's a bit like any kind of president, I suppose. You've got authority. You, you don't run it. The CEO runs it. The, mm. the, the coach runs the football team. The football manager runs the football department. The, the CEO runs the organisation. But as chairman of the board or as president of the club, you're there as the voice of the members and you're there to oversee the thing and to steward the thing through its process. And in times of crisis, and we've had a couple of those this year, you're there to, to make the big call on the coach or you know, on, on senior staff. I mean, why did you want to be president, given it is such a strange role? Well, I didn't know it was strange before I did it for starters. <laughs> so uh, note to anyone thinking about it, it's a strange role. I, I don't really know. And actually, I've been thinking about this a lot because when I first got approached about it, I didn't see myself in the role. And that's weird to me because I've generally seen myself with being, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be coy about it. I've generally seen myself as being fine with being in charge and I didn't see myself in this role. And I suspect actually Kylie and Kate probably started a little while before I did. And when they stepped in, not that Peggy wasn't an inspiration, she absolutely was, but she was Peggy. And you couldn't imagine anyone else being Peggy. And I I just didn't see anyone who looked like me in the space. And and I don't just mean female. I, I'm, I said in the, I'm in the not-for-profit sector, not in the corporate sector. So I have a different background than a, a lot of other people. So I didn't see me and I think that, that it took me a little while probably to get to the point where I was comfortable with the idea of it. I haven't had time to think about it since I took it on, to be honest. <laughs> well, but just on that, I mean, that was one of the things, as much as I was so thrilled to see another woman take up a leadership role in football because it is still a rarity, for me it was uh, quite a coup that it was someone who heads up a not-for-profit and there is now Patty Kinnersley at Carlton, Belinda Duarte at the Western Bulldogs as well. We've got Jodie Sizer who's coming from a corporate background but still in kind of that human rights space. Is that a sign that football is changing? I think it's a sign that the world generally is changing, actually. And I think we are getting better at accepting all forms of diversity as good for an organisation. And um, and in this context, it's probably diversity of thought. So I see the world differently and I approach the world differently. It doesn't make my way right, but it means when you combine it with a traditional corporate approach or a traditional governance you know, approach, you get a, a, a blending of ideas that probably takes you somewhere different and interesting. And, you know, as an organisation, North Melbourne's small and, you know, it's a, it's a small club and it's a small club in a market that increasingly likes big clubs. And so if we're going to make a success, we're going to have to compete different. And that means bringing in different ways of thinking. Now, it doesn't mean my way, as I said, doesn't make my way better it just increases the the different perspectives around the table and that's what you get when you seek out gender diversity and you know cultural diversity and age diversity and all those other things and I think we've moved away from football boards being men of a particular age a particular background a particular cultural set and you know football as a result is much richer. You've championed inclusion and belonging for so long you know, you head up a not-for-profit that works with migrant and refugee communities but so much of leadership and I'm finding the more I kind of spend time in sports administration comes with a lot of compromise. What does that look like for you and how do you deal with that? Yeah it's a really good question so to me belonging is absolutely at the essence of what makes football tick people connect to their team and they connect to their club and I've heard people say it's about wins and losses it kind of isn't actually it's about the journey now it's not fair to say we all want to win but you know North finished on bottom of the ladder this year and we had more members than we've ever had before people aren't connecting to failure they're connecting to hope you know that's the thing and that connection that that wanting to belong that that's the core of of what makes our industry 
successful. I'd argue it's the core of what makes our country successful. So our ability to welcome people from all kinds of different backgrounds and nationalities, absolutely core. There's a really ugly underbelly to that. But the ugly underbelly is exactly that. It's not a majority view and it's not something we should therefore ignore, um, but it's something we need to kind of deal with. So the compromises for me, uh, there are things I won't compromise on and treating people with respect is an absolutely non-negotiable as far as I'm concerned um, and treating people well and making people feel welcome. But that's not at all costs. Um, Mm. They've got to meet you halfway. You talk, there was a lot of talk about the way you went about convincing Alistair Clarkson to join the club. And some of that conversation was around talking to him about the spirit of the club and the culture and what the club stands for. In your view, what is that? I mean, I feel like you've already touched on it a little bit, but, you know, what is the spirit of North Melbourne Football Club? Um, people talk about the shin bone spirit and then we all tie ourselves up in knots trying to explain, <laughs> explain what it is. But and its essence... North Melbourne's an inner, inner urban club. It's based, it's sat in the same part of the uh, city for 153 years, if you excuse a brief detour to Coburg. But other than that, it's been in the one spot. And North Melbourne as a suburb has been a suburb of migrants and working people for the whole of its, you know, kind of settled history, I suppose. So those values, the values of aspiration, the values of hard work, the values of doing with what you have rather than, um, you know, kind of whinging about what you don't uh, is part of what underpins our club as far as I'm concerned and it's part of who we are. You've talked about the process of getting Alistair Clarkson is something that you actually didn't know how to go about and that you kind of were new to it so you brought a fresh perspective. Do you think that's what made the difference? Firstly I've got to give credit to my board and actually to the whole organisation. We sat down as a as a group, the board and the CEO and some of the senior executive and, and we worked out what we wanted in our next coach. We had to look really hard at what had happened over the last couple of years with two coaching appointments which had both been made with a lot of fanfare and a lot of optimism and actually hadn't worked out and you know with no both incredibly good people so that's on us as much as it is on anything else Um, and we had to look really hard at ourselves as an organization and say what did we get wrong there and then how are we going about making this next decision and the decision to go after Alistair was a unanimous one we weren't going to do it by using the processes we we'd used and used before he's it was, it was going to be the first job he was looking for in 17 years. I mean, that's extraordinary when you think about it. Uh, so um, so we flipped the process to, to say what, what's the right thing for him as much as what's the right thing. And you're right, I'd never done a coach. Uh, well, I had been on the, the process for David Noble, actually, so it's not fair to say I hadn't done a coach appointment before, but I hadn't run one and I certainly hadn't run anything of this profile. So... Um, I'm incredibly proud of the way we went about it. We we stuck to our approach. We we sold ourselves rather than we knew how much we could afford and where and where we couldn't go. We knew what we couldn't commit to, and we didn't get spooked. And there was plenty of things along the way that could have spooked us too. <laughs> well, there's been plenty of things in your short time as president, but also you've been on the board for quite some time now, and you've dealt with a lot of football politics. Is there? a key to dealing with the politics in football and is it different to what you deal with in your other job? It's different. So in, at its essence, no, but the difference in football is is the noise of it and the, the amount of it, I suppose. The noise is phenomenal and the number of opinions and actually well, often well-intentioned and well-informed opinions, but there are so many of them and lots of different voices to listen to. The noise from the football media is out of this world. I've watched with enormous interest over the last couple of weeks all of the, you know, declarations around our CEO and how we're appointing a CEO and how we're doing this and what Alice is doing and what players are going and what players are saying. And it, I mean, they're declarative and often wrong. And if you spent your life correcting the record, you wouldn't do anything else. So that stuff is unexpected. And then the noise of the number of people who have opinions within your club, outside of your club, supporters. It often amazes me that to me the supporters with them or the members with the most right to have an opinion who are the people who buy their membership year in, year out, never question and turn up at games and all the rest of it, they're least likely to come up and tell you what you should be doing. But there are some loud voices from the past who love to tell you what you should be doing and, and sometimes that's helpful and sometimes it's not. 
Do you think perception is reality in football? No, absolutely not. No. But if you're not careful, perception can become reality, I suppose. But we've battled that for a long time. The perceptions about our club, everything in our club becomes an existential question, you know. So the sorts of normal conversations you could have in other clubs become, is this the end of North Melbourne? Are they being relocated? Da, da, da. So actually we're a pretty well-run and uh, well-managed business. Are we lean? Absolutely we are. Do we have much spare cash? No, we absolutely do not. So, But in the midst of all of that, we've spent nearly, you know, best part of 15 years paying down debt and building a facility and, and behaving like the grown-ups. So. You know, Brendan Gale was famously on TV talking about, you know, three premierships and whatever it was, um, and he's He's been very blessed to be proven right. Um, for you, you sort of said success will mean that that existential threat for North Melbourne goes away. So how do you go about doing that and what does that actually look like? So it's the existential threat and it's the on-field success. The two things have to happen. We've tended to have, in our history, we've tended to have one or the other. We want them both. And you do it the same way you do everything. One block at a time and just through sheer hard work and the, and you know what Brendan did at Richmond is an absolute inspiration in my view that's exactly how they went about it unpick the stuff from the past that doesn't work build up the the way you want your organization to be drive your values from the ground up remove the people from your organization who don't share or fit your values make sure that that all those decisions you take are headed towards that one purpose and we have to do that so it's not the quick wins or the quick fixes or the quick money I think that's the thing for people to understand with with bringing Alistair on there's a there's a journey now that we have to go through on field to to rebuild our list and our on-field performance and it's not going to be quick it's not going to take us a decade either but it's 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 um it's not going to happen next year so keeping people on the journey with you that's part of the challenge I think Having kind of, and this this is going to sound really um, odd, but having watched your career <laughs> for a period of time as someone who kind of aspires to some of the heights that you've reached, I'm always staggered by your confidence and, and almost audacity sometimes, you know, things like keep north-south when, you know, there was a threat at the club to move it up to Queensland. You know, you were front and centre saying, no, let's not do that. I'm so interested in what in your life has shaped that kind of will and confidence and and just, you know, like you said, you're quite happy to be the boss. Uh, that one was I was part of a, a, a movement with a group of people who were just phenomenal and who I still, uh, well, I'd love to go to the footy with them now, but I don't get to do that anymore, but I still certainly talk footy with them pretty much every day. So, you know, very, very pleased to have had that experience in my life. I, I don't know, I look at you and think you've got the most incredibly articulate voice and way of presenting to the world and I wish I had had that you know a kind of um you're a lot, a lot younger than me and it's taken me a long time to find my voice I, I've spent a lot of my life being worried about the impact of speaking out so I've been good about speaking on behalf of other things I'm good at causes you know I've always been that um I was that kid at school who would stand up for injustice you know but I wouldn't stand up for what I wanted necessarily but I go and find someone and stand up for them so that's probably gets a bit condescending at some point in your life. <laughs> no, we need we we all we need all kinds really as long as all our voices are raised. Before I let you go, any advice for aspiring women in particular who think leadership in sport is for them? Firstly, I want more women to think leadership for in sport is for them. I'm um, incredibly frustrated by the number of young women I meet and it, it, it's it's increasingly common that I will get asked for a coffee or a chat or a kid, someone needs advice or some help and I will, if I can do it, I'll always do it. And I'm increasingly frustrated by the number when I ask them, where do you see yourself? They put a ceiling on that. You know, they might run a department one day. Or, but if I ask, do you want to be CEO of a club or CEO of the AFL, hasn't occurred to them to think in those terms. And I can tell you, the blokes out there are thinking in those terms. So we have to start seeing ourselves in those roles. Now, I've got to look at myself because I didn't see myself in this role and yet here I am. So, you know, maybe there's a good hard conversation to have here first. I'm going to bypass that bit. <laughs> Yeah, let's park that one. <laughs> so I'm in an industry where self-reflection actually isn't the dumb thing. So I can now say, um, I can now just give the advice to everybody else. It's be ambitious. That's my advice. Be ambitious. Be ambitious and 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 meet people and contact people and go and ask people who are in the role you want. How did you get there? I'm Kate Sheila. 
I grew another three centimeters this week and you are listening to the Outer Sanctum podcast. Thank you, Rana. Thank you, Sonia Hood. And thank you, Kate Sheila, who's just getting taller week by week. Sheila, watch. (laughs) You know, her teammates laugh at her because they think she's like that inflatable guy that's out the front of car washes. It wouldn't be grand final week without us getting into some silly stuff. Lucy, you have a query about the footy gods and what they make of fans and fandom. What are your theories? Well, I saw this week that there is a company that is commercialising the fence decorations for footy finals. And we saw a bit of this last year. There was so many of those demons fences. So it's basically like a big printed piece of plastic that you can put on your fence. And I asked the question of the group, what do the footy footy gods make of that kind of investment? And It seems, because it seems like a lot. I'm not quite sure where it fits. So last week ahead of the prelim, I saw that the Collingwood Football Club had actually tweeted a link to it and were encouraging fans that, you know, this is something that you might want to consider for your fence. I'm now sort of wondering whether that might have been just that last little tipping point that stopped them from winning the Tipping game. point, just the one point, point, just the point. I mean, I love a homemade decoration. I am kind of, there's, you know, I have a bit of Chardon football when I see fences still painted in Richmond colours or still painted in Demons colours and we're into mm. another grand final. It makes me kind of laugh that people are like, oh, well, this is how we live now. But seriously, you don't need to spend a lot of money to decorate your house. Any old scarves flying around, you can hang them from the front, you can get streamers, you can make some bunting out of paper. All of these things work. Even though I know this contradicts exactly what I just said about entertainment at the games and that it's taking away from people being creative, but I feel like the footy gods would understand that as a nation we're overworked, we're under-resourced, and time is value. So, (laughs) yes, of course, it doesn't cost a lot of money to decorate your house, but money is time. And if you don't have time, for example, to um, paint a fence, to go to Bunnings to get in the car, you've got too much on, then maybe the footy gods would understand that there is a particular cost of living crisis going on. Sometimes we just need to make things just a little bit easier for ourselves. What are your thoughts on that as an argument? (laughs) I don't like it and you're being silly. (laughs) I think it's ridiculous. I think it's um I think it's actually non-sustainable and especially if people put the date on it. I'm like, if you put the date on it or if you have a player's face on it, you're in all sorts because you can't use it again. If they make the finals again, you can't reuse it unless you're using it as a tablecloth for, on Christmas Day. One thing I loved, shout out to my friend Siggy, the mascot for the Swans, who I did a fashion critical of earlier this year. It's my favorite mascot. Um, as you know, sorry, just setting aside Hawkett, who's actually one of my best friends um but just Siggy actually kept was like the people's the people's mascot in the dying minutes of the pies swans game the Siggy mascot had covered their big plastic eyes because they couldn't watch it was too much I'm even crying thinking about it I was like give that person an Oscar right now. It was the greatest moment of the finals for me. I loved every second of it. Siggy, three votes. Siggy's going to have a huge week and I'm mm. on Siggy. I'm really on Siggy over half cat. I'm so yeah. sorry to say what that. What we need is don't talk about half cat like that. What's half cat ever done to you? Half cat has been an institution. Emma Race, don't you dare bring half cat into this. Too slow. <laughs> Well, the old cat's new tricks, whatever the saying is, so just wait for this weekend. I would give anything to have two little boxes. You know how they have like a bench, you know, they have someone on the bench and you can see them in the little box down the corner. Have Siggy watch, have Half Cat watch, two little boxes on my screen so I can constantly be watching their reactions. That is what I'm looking for next weekend. Are you also looking for oily arms? Buddy loves an oily arm too. He'll oil that up. He will be in a vat. (laughs) Absolutely. For people that didn't see this, so a couple of weeks ago I said I felt really depressed after the Dane Zorko Melbourne um, sledging incident because I realised that, like, not only are lots of men gross but also not funny and that was a real offence to me. I thought, come on, you've got a lot of time to work out how you're going to sledge your opponent. Like, come on, come up with something good. So on the weekend, Braden Maynard, who I really 
just love. I think he is so much fun. He went straight over to Buddy and started rubbing his arms and starting to rub the oil off and was like, ooh, you know, like it was physical comedy. I loved it absolutely so much. And another story came out last week of um, Jack Ginevan and there was a kind of a really beautiful article in The Age actually just about Jack. Jack Ginevan's story and journey to footy and how he kind of didn't come from the classic. Um, bye-bye. Well, that's, that's what the footy gods said to Collingwood this week. Bye-bye. Anyway, so Jack Ginevan, there was a story about how a runner for the Gold Coast Sun said they came out to defence um, in round 16 and Ginevan went over to him and said, oh, here's the runner here to deliver a very important message from Stewie Jew. <laughs> the runner was like, it was really funny and I had no comeback. Oh, I hear that it. in a Monty Python voice or like an English accent like, oh, and here come the messages from Mr. Stuart Jew. I just think it is hilarious. I can't get enough of that. So players take note. Give us some fun. Give us some funny action this weekend. And anyone going to Buddy, if you don't pretend to slide right off him in a comical way, then you're not doing it right. Oh, man, it's the best. All right, instead of getting your tips for the grand final, what I want is your storylines for the grand final. Is it going to be the Selwood show? Is it going to be all about this record-breaking moment for him or is it going to be the Buddy show or is it going to be something completely else? What do you reckon, Lou? I'm going for the story of the brothers because we've got the Guthrie brothers playing for Geelong and then we've got the McCartan brothers playing for Sydney. And I just love watching siblings play. And getting to see them play on the same team is so exciting. The romantic in me just wants the win for the McCartan brothers. Um, I think Paddy McCartan is a massive story. Just the fact that he has had so many challenges and has come back and is playing so well. Tom McCartan was a massive story in that prelim. The fact that he didn't let a lot of those points go through, he cleared that last line of defense beautifully and that made a difference they're the they're the one percenters so I'm going for the the story of the brothers it'll come as no shock I'm gonna tip a Geelong win I think Jeremy Cameron's gonna kick a bag Chekhov's bag I realized I realized watching the Brownlow he's kicked 150 bags I don't know that's a bag shop that's a luggage compartment he's he's Kicked it all, all year. I think he's going to do it again. Dane Rampey, if there's anything I'm looking for for him in a grand final, it's to climb a goalpost. Don't give it to us and then take it away. So climb another goalpost on grand final day and make a real thing of it. And I really think Joel Selwood, win a flag as captain and then hang him up. I think it'll be his last game for the Cats and I hope he wins the flag. I, I know that's offensive to say in front of two Hawthorne people, not, but I'm just going to go in oh, there. I'm so not. troubled by how I feel about this, but I love those Guthrie brothers and I actually really love Paddy Dangerfield and it pains mm. me to say this. I don't even feel bad about Isaac Smith and here I am championing Buddy. Like it, it's the biggest loss we've ever had at the club and I feel so thrilled for him. So I hate it, but I think football's the big winner. I think it will be... Uh, either either win is a great story for a town that probably needs it. Like it would be, uh, I love it when Geelong is just, you know, celebrating like that. It's, it's far enough out of my grill that I don't get people going up and out, down Hoddle Street out the front of my house like they did when Collingwood made, <laughs> made it through last week. And, you know, it's great for Sydney football. I think that Gil would be thrilled to leave his post with a Sydney grand final. I feel like that that would be kind of heralding in a KPI that, that he'd want to achieve. I think it's any anyone's game they both play an extraordinary brand of football I feel like Isaac Heaney's is going to be the difference and I'd love to see someone called Errol win the Norm Smith <laughs> I love that Selwood and Selwood and Buddy both played in 2008 it's it's fascinating that both of them are the only two players from their teams on that day that are still playing and I I love the story of the age of the Geelong team versus the age of the the Sydney team. I think we saw a lot of those Sydney youngsters stand up on the weekend and I think all players need to stand up because keeping your feet is important in this game. Uh, stripy, red and white in the outer, it always looks like where's Wally, but stripy, uh, red, white and blue um, around the ground is such a good colour combination on grand final day. You know, sometimes like when you've got like purples and oranges and or oranges and browns and yellows and stuff, it doesn't always look so cinematic. I feel like this is one for all the illustrators out there. Um, it's time for us to get out of here. As an ode to Paddy Cripps, we've had our little Paddy Armstrong on board today. Um, he might take us out with his bye-byes, but there is only one thing left for the three of us to say, and that is 
Bob, who do you think's gonna win? Bark once for cats. Okay, thanks. Bob, that was beautiful. Well done. Hey, Patty, can you say hello? Hello, hello, hello. And welcome to the Outer Sanctum's tipping section. Now, Patty, at 18 months, you're probably too young to remember Paul the octopus, but he was an octopus that would tip like the World Cup results. So it was unscientific and to be honest I don't remember his track record but for our grand final purposes we thought we'd use instead of Paul the octopus Paddy the toddler which similar vibes in some ways Mm, exactly now Paddy are you gonna say go swans okay or are you gonna say go cats oh go cats All right, well, that's it from us. A resounding go, cats. Now, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Say go footy. Yay. Yay. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.